1: Hey, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This episode is going back to 2018, by the way. I'm your host, Mason. Today, I'm not hosting, though. This is before, right before I became a host back to 2018. Felicity Aston is an all-timer, huge adventure name uh, all throughout the UK, very well-known, has done tons of adventures, written almost half a dozen books now. Frankly, we need to have her back on Uh, to talk about some of her adventures since becoming the first woman to ski alone across Antarctica. A journey of a 1,000 miles. Took almost 60 days to complete. That is nuts. And she got a a, a Guinness World Record. So tons of stuff. Royal Geographic Society, the Explorers Club. She is a rock star. And if you haven't listened to Monday's episode with Greg Morrissey, which is a brand new episode, please do that. All about investing into the next generation of adventurers. Also, you know, working with the Explorers Club a lot. If you haven't noticed, our episodes are getting dangerously close to a thousand episodes. And you might be thinking, you know, what do we have in store for a thousand? Well, we do have something planned, uh, we're going to have an amazing guest. We're going to have some extra stuff, and we're going to have some announcements. But ahead of that, we also have some really big goals for 2024. I want to greatly increase our listenership, uh, but I'm going to need your help to do that. We have been played and shared with literally millions of people over the last thousand episodes, and I think we're only laying the foundation for what we're getting ready to do. And if this show has been at all inspiring for you, giving you any sort of benefit, please share it with your community. Share the, your favorite episode. Share your favorite stories. There's stories from years ago I still talk about that I love because I, I think if people listen to it, it will benefit their lives. If you feel that way, please share. Uh, it would mean the world to me. And that's how podcasts grow. And if you're interested in supporting the show financially, I ask for five bucks a month for those that want to over at Patreon. You can just go towards podcast expenses and the software I use and the time it takes. And the you know, I put a lot of time into this. I'm recording this actually at midnight, the night before uh, episode release. So it's a lot of time, a lot of effort. I love to do it and every little bit helps. So if you got extra five bucks a month, If not, that's totally fine too. It is a joy to bring you stories like this. In a world filled with screens and short content and just junk food social media, it is awesome to bring you something with substance, something meaningful, and something that can really add value to your life. So as we approach this first thousand episode milestone, let's make the second thousand that much better. Let's dive in.
2: Hello, friends. Kurt here. Today I have Felicity Aston with me, and Felicity has quite the amazing resume for polar exploration. Back in 2000 to 2003, she was the senior meteorologist in Antarctica, and that introduced her to what the Arctic and Antarctic living was like. In 2005, she did the race across arctic canada called the polar challenge in 2006 she crossed the greenland ice sheet in 2012 she became the first person to ski across antarctica and i'm excited to spend quite a bit of time talking about that and more recently she made it to the north pole just this last april uh, in addition to that she has crossed lake Baikal. she has completed the marathon to Saab. wow what a list of achievements. Welcome to the program Felicity.
3: Thanks very much.
2: You bet. I'm just blown away by all of these major expeditions and I'm going to start just right there. So Felicity, how is it possible for one person to have done so many major expeditions?
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always been in a bit of a hurry, um, hungry for new experiences I guess and so uh you know, when you finish one big expedition, you know it's it's taken up so much of your life and absorbed so much of your time and attention and energy that you know once it's done, I guess you're looking for something else to to fill that hole. And uh, <laughs> and so it's very easy to sort of skip from from one to the other. And uh, yeah, and great fun along the way.
2: Mm. And you spend so much time in the Arctic or the Antarctic. Um, why? What is the appeal that draws you back to those icy landscapes?
3: Yeah, it's funny because you know I've spent time in the jungle uh, in South America and I've spent time in deserts, but there is something about the winter environment that uh, I find endlessly fascinating. And uh, and I guess now at this stage, um, you know, it's the place where I feel most comfortable, and so perhaps that's an element as to why I keep being drawn back. I mean, Antarctica particularly is just such a unique place to experience. And you do experience it. You know, nobody goes to the Antarctic and comes back going, oh, yeah, that was all right. You know, they come back raving about what an impact it's had on them as people. Um, and, you know, there's very few places, I think, that can do that.
2: Wow. So this started for you back in 2000 when you were in Antarctica as a senior meteorologist. What was that initial impact like? Let's start there. Uh, This is what, I guess, convinced you that you loved the Arctic. So what was that like?
3: Yeah, well, I was very young. I was 23. It was my first proper job after university. So it was daunting for all those reasons. Um, But I remember when I first turned up at the base that was to be my place of work and my home for the next two and a half years, you know, I remember looking at it thinking, oh my goodness. Um, It was really daunting because you had the backdrop of the Antarctic Peninsula behind it. It was a really busy place. It was the middle of a short summer season, which which is frantically busy with everyone trying to get everything done before winter comes in. And, um yeah, and, and, you know, just thinking about all the time that was to come where I would be cut off from my family, my friends in the winter time for seven months, you're pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. Um You know, there are no boats, no planes, nothing like that. But I think the thing that really worried me um, was, will I be good enough? You know, will I be able to pull my weight or will some terrible flaw and weakness be shown up in me? You know, and I'll be shown not to be good enough, not to be able to do this. And uh, so I think that was the most worrying thing of all. But in terms of it going on to then lead me to go back to do expeditions, I think uh, I got, uh, because my job was so great at enabling me to travel to different parts of Antarctica, you know, I'd had a glimpse out of plane windows and at various forward field camps of this stunning scenery and I was so curious to find out what it would be like to travel across it um, you know on skis on foot on surface level to travel over land in this amazing place Uh, and that's what I think motivated me to go back as an expedition.
2: Well it is amazing to think that we have an entire continent at the bottom of this planet that is almost entirely uninhabited and when it is inhabited, it's, it's a scientific team like yours that really is sustained from elsewhere. You know, there's no way in Antarctica to just stay and be and have any sort of a, a long-term relation with land without that outside support. So it amazes me to think about the vastness of a whole continent on this planet that very few people know anything about.
3: Yeah, I mean, we know we're very used to seeing Antarctica as a sort of hazy white blob at the bottom of the world map, but, you know, it's twice the size of Australia. And we think of Australia as being a pretty big continent. And this is twice the size. And as you say, it's completely empty. There's never been any native population. So unlike the Arctic, there isn't any sort of human culture in this place. It's completely devoid of any kind of human history um, up until, you know, the heroic age of exploration, up until the early 1900s. And uh, and there is no life once you get away from the coast. You know, there's no land mammals. uh, There's no polar bears. There's no penguins or seabirds or, you know, there's nothing once you get into the interior and that emptiness of everything I think is why it is such a unique part of our planet you know there is nowhere else where you experience quite that level of solitude and uh, it is that vastness and that emptiness that is part of its appeal
2: So how cold is cold in the winter time there?
3: I think the lowest temperature ever recorded in Antarctica was something like minus 98 degrees centigrade Mm. Um, I mean that's like Five times colder than my freezer at home. It's uh, you know a ridiculous temperature, and it, I think it's bordering on what people can actually survive. You know what it, what it's possible to survive. Um, but if you went to Antarctica in an average winter time at the coast, uh, it'd probably get down to sort of minus forty, something like that. And then if you're at the South Pole, uh, I think it's pretty common that they get down to sort of below minus sixty, things like that. Wow. Very, very cold. Yeah, I mean the coldest I've ever experienced You know, because I've only been in Antarctica on skis in the summertime because otherwise it's just too dark, too cold to be on a ski journey Um, and the coldest I've ever experienced has been down to sort of minus 50 that kind of thing Uh, but a few years ago I made an expedition to a part of Siberia where there's this tiny little village called Omicon of about 300 people and they uh, held the wonderful title of the coldest inhabited place on earth so they once recorded a temperature of minus 71.2 degrees centigrade and the amazing thing about that is that as you say in Antarctica you know you have to be supported by the outside world you have you know specialized equipment specialized skills uh knowledge you know you've been trained and uh you have plans a through to z of what ifs but you know in this tiny little part of Siberia um people are going to work driving cars the kids go to school all at temperatures Uh, far colder than those in the greater part of Antarctica. So it it was a bit of a mind-boggling experience to go there and see how they cope with that.
2: (laughs) Well, of all of your various expeditions and all the different things that you've done, do any stand out as particularly amazing to you, life-impacting?
3: Wow. Uh, I think every expedition leaves me changed in some way. And uh, I think that's because... The expeditions that I put together you know when I'm thinking about okay what am I doing next they have to be challenging to me in some way or different you know something I haven't done before I'm one of those people that get bored quite easily so you know if it's something I know I can do it's probably not going to hold my attention for very long and these expeditions you know they take a year two years to put together so you really have to be sure that it's something that's going to get you fired up and keep your enthusiasm going for a very long time yeah and in terms of a standout moment it's really difficult to pick just one and so often you know I get asked about what's the best moment and what's the worst moment of a trip and so often they are one and the same thing I remember the moment when uh, the plane first left me when I was going to ski across Antarctica alone and I just remember standing there on the coast of Antarctica watching this plane become a tiny little black blob in the sky and then disappearing and I knew that it had taken a whole week of logistical maneuvering for that plane to be able to drop me off in that spot so therefore you know no one was going to come back for me in a hurry uh, without it being very timely uh, you know time expensive as well as money expensive to do that and um, I knew there was not another living human being for about 600 kilometers in any direction you know that sudden shock of isolation of being so totally responsible for my own well-being and so cut off from other real forms of, of human contact human support that was, at the same time, terrifying and wonderful. And in terms of experiences that have changed me as a person, that experience there of trying to get my own emotions under control, of trying to work through that fear that, that I was left with because of that sense of aloneness, uh, that has to be up there with the, <laughs> with
1: the best of them. Oh, yeah. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence and there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected and also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering and the entire defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures they have the two-door defender 90 the defender 110 and the defender 130 which seats up to eight so push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further the defender 110 learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell anything online at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollars in revenue stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're a podcaster trying to sell merch, or selling autographed sports memorabilia, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one commerce platform to their personal POS system, Shopify has got you covered. Now, I do use Shopify with my day job. That's our website and that's our platform. It's so handy. It makes it easy for us on the back end. And it makes it easy for you as a shopper and as a customer to sell more. And They can help you all the way from those early, early days until you're a real business, making real money. And That's what I love about them. No matter how big you want to grow, they can grow with you and help you take Control your business to get it to that next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash ASP, all lowercase. Again, go to Shopify.com slash ASP to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ASP. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
2: Let's dive into that emotional bit just a little. I want to go back and touch on more of the different expeditions and then come back to Antarctica and spend more time on that. But the reason I bring this up is uh, we climbed a 14-er last weekend, and it was a class three, and there was some exposure, and it was difficult. And there are a lot of people attracted to this mountain who hadn't climbed many mountains. And I, I preface it that way just because it it kind of explains what was going on. Some people were were climbing and scaling the mountain with confidence. You know, other people were so full of adrenaline that they were jumpy. I mean, they were uh, jumping around like fleas, you know what I mean? And when they would start to climb, they would just kind of haphazardly grab and and scurry. and, And you could tell that they were just on adrenaline overload. Then there were other people who actually sat down, put their hands over their face and sobbed and cried because the experience was so overwhelming for those people. And it's nothing like being dropped off, <laughs> isolated alone in Antarctica. But because you had that experience, part of the reason that people like to do adventure sports is to stretch themselves. It's to learn more about themselves and find out what they're capable of doing. And uh, I saw a lot of people having that experience on the mountain, but. I guess the question I have for you is, how did you learn to manage your emotions so that you could actually be dropped off solo in Antarctica and say, you know what, I'm going to be all right?
3: Mm, Well, it it is interesting, and this whole area of psychology is, is a massive topic that, um, You know, I don't think we could ever be done with discussing. And uh, it's interesting for me how, although my experiences are very niche, when you start talking about the psychology of it, so many people find resonance with their own life, even though, you know, their own life experiences are so different to mine. And yet there seems to be this sort of common thread that runs through so many different experiences uh, that people have. But, you know, the idea that I ever sort of conquered that fear, I I think, is probably you know, misleading. I I found ways to keep going despite that fear, but I don't think it ever went away. Um, It was just that in every moment, I felt that fear to a greater or lesser extent. I found routine very helpful. Um, There's a polar explorer called Erling Kag. He was the first person to ski to the South Pole. And in uh, his wonderfully titled book called Philosophy for Polar Explorers, although it's not just for polar explorers, it's for everybody. Um, but he, he said this thing let routine take command of feeling. Mm. And, you know, this, this quote kept going round and round in my head let routine take command of feeling. So my life on expeditions is quite ruled by routine anyway. You know, I have routines for everything putting my tent up, putting my tent down, um, you know, what I do in the mornings, what I do in the evenings before I go to sleep, because it's easier that way to make sure that you're not forgetting anything and that everything is getting done you know if you've got a routine you don't even have to worry about whether everything's done or not but this idea of sticking to that routine even more religiously so that you take the emotion out of what you're doing really worked for me and I think this is you know if you've ever sort of got up early to go for a run before work And it's, you know, a cold, miserable, rainy morning. It's still pretty dark out there. You know, if you sat by your door before you go, lacing up your shoes, thinking about what is it going to feel like out there? How am I going to feel as I'm running through that rain? You know, what is that going to feel like? Then you would never go out and do that run. But if you sort of just let your body almost mechanically take over and it's like you put your shoes on, you grab your your water bottle or your a squeezy bag or whatever it is that you take with you and off you go out the door. You know, if you let that routine kind of carry you forward, it takes the emotion out of it. You're not thinking about how you're going to feel. You're just going through the motions until you're already outside the door and pounding the pavement. And, uh, you know, it's exactly the same thing in Antarctica for me is that I almost became quite robotic. You know, everything was done by routine um, and it just helped to take the emotion out of it, helped to take, uh, you know, the edge off of my personal emotional reactions to the circumstances I found myself in.
2: I think that's probably one of the reasons why you're so successful at all of these ventures because... You have to be able to uh, take care of what has to be taken care of just to survive. And so if you allowed fear or concern or, or things like that to inhibit that process, you could really endanger yourself.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I I don't want to give the impression that uh, I was always, you know, admirably calm. I mean, there were times when I would sit on my sledge and put my head in my hands and and sob my heart out and think, what have I done? But I was always able to bring myself back to that idea of routine. I remember about 10 days before I finished. So the the journey took me about 59 days, about 10 days before I I finished that journey alone across Antarctica. I, I had a I guess you would call it a panic attack. I was sitting there. I I knew the weather was really bad outside. The visibility was really bad. And, you know, when I say bad visibility in Antarctica, what I mean is that you can't see anything. You can't see up from down. You're totally disoriented. Mm. You feel nauseous, almost like a travel nausea, because, you know, there is no up or down. There's no fixed point of reality. And uh, I knew I was quite near some crevassing, and I knew there was no hope that I would ever see any kind of crevassing uh, until I was on top of it. And um, and the whole thing, just, you know, the, the whole situation got on top of me. And I had, you know, I, I, was t- I was absolutely petrified, absolutely terrified of getting out of that tent. And so I thought, okay, I, you know, I sat there and I thought it through. And I thought, what I've done here is that 10 days away from the finish, my mind was already at the finish. You know, my head, I was already done. And yet I was, it was like my body, the reality was struggling to keep up. So I thought, right, what I need to do now is reset. You know, I need to, but just spend a couple of hours, not getting out the tent straight away and skiing, but a couple of hours sorting myself out, both, physically and mentally, as if I was about to set out on a 10-day expedition. And so that's what I did. I kind of repacked my sledges and I sorted out all my ration bags and everything as if I was setting out on a brand new 10-day expedition. And, uh, you know, those kind of mind tricks you play with yourself, (laughs) yourself, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But that one worked particularly well for me. And in that instance, that was how I managed to carry on despite this, you know, rather high level of fear.
2: Mm. On your first, I'm going to say night, and that might not even be correct. I don't know exactly what the season was and how much light and darkness that you had, but the, the first stop of the first day, how did you feel as you were setting up your tent and getting ready to, to rest?
3: Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, the first, I mean, you don't have any uh, darkness. It's summertime in Antarctica when you're traveling, so it's 24 hour daylight. Um, but for me the tent being in the tent was when my aloneness was most apparent and when I had to be really careful about letting that emotion in Um, because when you're on the move when you're on your skis when you're it's, it's very easy to pretend that there's a team behind you you know if you turned around there'd be a team there behind you and it's You know, it was easy to trick myself into thinking I wasn't alone. And there was lots of distraction. You know, Antarctica itself is a wonderful distraction. You see the weather come and go. You see wonderful optical effects. There's, you know, a a lot to take your mind off things. But as soon as you get into the tent, there's no escaping the fact that you are alone (laughs) and by yourself. And, of course, you know, as you'll know yourself, the environment sounds a lot more terrifying when you're inside a tent than it does when you're outside a tent. So when you're sat in a little tent being... Buffeted by an Antarctic storm, and uh, you're aware, you're acutely aware of just how alone you are, and just how far help is. Yeah, that was perhaps the time I struggled most.
2: Yeah, I can imagine that would be the toughest for sure. So, how cold did it get on your expedition on the crossing of the continent?
3: Uh, well, my uh, sledges—I had two sledges attached, one behind the other—and even though I was going to have a resupply at the South Pole and another resupply about 500 kilometres further along uh, my route, uh, both of which were dropped off by aircraft. Even though uh, I was having those two resupplies, you know, when I put everything in my sledge, it weighed far too much. So I went through those sledges again and again and again, throwing out anything that wasn't going to be absolutely essential to success or failure, you know, that wasn't going to make that level of difference. And so one of the things that got the boot was a thermometer because I don't actually need to know what the temperature is. So the thermometer got the boot and I got my uh, sledges down to about 85 kilograms, which is kind of, I think, about an average weight for a fully grown man, that kind of weight. Um, So that was... That was kind of manageable. So I don't know what the temperature was, but, you know, I've spent two winters in Antarctica before. And uh, when I got to the South Pole, I was told that it was minus 38. And that felt pretty balmy compared to what I'd just come through. So part of my journey to get to the South Pole had gone way over 4000 metres, which, you know, it starts to affect temperature. So I think I was down in the minus 40 somewhere for most of that, uh, for that first leg from the coast to the pole.
2: Wow, that's amazing. That is very, very cold. So what kind of sleeping bag did you have to use to to be able to stay warm while you rested?
3: Yeah, I had a a down five season bag that I looked after meticulously uh, because sleep was very important. You know, when you're doing a long trip like that, making sure you've got time to recover every day is, you know, what ensures that you can keep going for that longer period of time. So uh, sleep was really important to me and making sure I got good sleep as well. And you're not going to get good sleep if you're cold. But I perhaps paid more attention to the mats I was using underneath. So I used these sort of special closed cell foam kind of mats and then an insulator under that so that the flooring in the tent was pretty good at, at keeping me insulated from the snow.
2: Mm. So tell us a story, if you would, about an experience where maybe you saw something or experienced something along the way that really stands out in your mind as really unique
3: Gosh, there's so many unique things in Antarctica. I, I, one of my most incredible sights in Antarctica was actually when I was traveling with a team to the South Pole. I was traveling with an international team of women, and we were skiing from the coast to the South Pole, and I was leading the team. And I wasn't navigating as much as you do. We'd seen lots of sort of parhelians and sun dogs and things like that. Uh, But suddenly this kind of optical display spread out into having fake suns. So we could see four or five suns in the sky. And they were all joined together with this sort of uh, halo effect. And then each of these suns had parhelions and you know an extended display of rainbows and optical effects around it and it was just one of the most stunning things I've ever seen and also one of the weirdest things and I remember even as I was watching it thinking how on earth am I going to explain this to other people how on earth are they going to believe me? Because it just seems so weird. And I remember Rina, who was from India, was behind me, and she was a very spiritual person. And she said uh, it's something along the lines of, we've been given true blessings. And, you know, although I'm, I, I didn't translate that experience in those spiritual terms, it really did feel like that. It felt like we'd been shown something pretty special.
2: Hmm. It's something I've said on the show many times, Felicity, but I, I keep telling people, if you go out and do things, then you have mind-blowing experiences. And you can't plan for those experiences. But one thing's for sure, if you stay home, it's not going to (laughs) happen, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they say you never regret the things you do. You only regret the things you don't do. And, you know, so many times on expeditions, what in the moment felt like the worst possible thing that could happen, you know, in retrospect, turn into some of your most nostalgic memories. You know, when you get together with those teammates you don't necessarily talk about the nice sunny days when you had a wonderful time. You talk about, ah, oh, do you remember when we ran out of food and we started sucking the sugar coating off the painkiller pills in the first aid kit? Or do you remember <laughs> when we, you know, when our feet froze to our socks and, you know, we invented some kind of thing to make it better. And these moments where you feel such pride and, you know, you feel alive in the fact that, you manage to find a way to make it work and it's a euphoria. And it's the same, you know, carrying on my analogy of going for a run in the rain. You know, you come back and you feel a million times better after that run in the rain than you ever do after a run in the sunshine. (laughs) There's something odd in human beings. You know, we delight in misery in some some way. Um, You know, the tougher it is, if you sort of go through real tough times and then come out the other end, there's a real sort of delight in that.
2: Oh, yeah. You have a format now. You've done some things that it provides you an opportunity to share things with the rest of the world that really matter to you. And you just mentioned that you were leading a group of women to the South Pole. And this is something I think that does matter to you. So tell us a little bit about your feelings about that in 2018. What is the place of women?
3: Yeah, well, it's something that, you know, I feel very passionately about, I feel very responsible. uh, You know, I feel a responsibility about the fact that, you know, right now in the same world in which I am alive, you know, the majority of women, the reality is the majority of women alive on the planet today aren't free to make their own choices in life be that through reasons of culture or politics or religion that they're, they're not free to make their own choices and as a woman i i feel that very personally and i think that i have a responsibility as a woman to do whatever i can to try and make that situation better you know and the one thing that i do well is put together expeditions so i started putting together expeditions for women in the hope that it would send a really positive message about what women are capable of doing and should be free to do uh, should they wish to and so the first one that I put together was a international women's team to the south pole where we had women from across the commonwealth so we had women from Singapore India Brunei Dar es Salaam Jamaica Ghana and West Africa all sorts of places big mix of of cultures and uh, many of those women were the first women from their country to ski to the South Pole when we reached there and two of them were the first person from their country to ski to the South Pole and that really worked very well in terms of sending a positive message because then when they got back to their home countries the fact that they were the first of their nation uh, to ski to the South Pole gave them a platform from which to share their story and the fact that it was a woman telling that story you know, was really powerful and we received so many emails and uh, communications from women and girls but also from men who said you know I realized after reading your story that I had made the assumption that my wife my daughter my sister wasn't capable of this or wasn't capable of that or you know that I hadn't been giving her the support that she needed or you know so it made men think differently too and uh, you know I was very proud of that so 10 years later, I put together another expedition, which was an international team of women to ski to the North Pole. But this time I focused on the Middle East. So we had 11 women skiing to the North Pole just this past April. And they were from countries like Oman, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, as well as countries like Sweden, Slovenia, Russia, France, and the UK. And so it was part cultural experiment, part expedition, which is a bit unusual. And, uh, And again, when we reached the North Pole you know we had women there that were the first person from their country so they're now going back to Qatar or Amman or wherever they came from saying I am the first person I'm the first Qatari to ski to the South Pole and I just happen to be a woman and so I, I hope that that has the same positive effect as uh, the previous expedition to the South Pole. Mm.
2: Do you know some stories that uh, kind of Show us the effect that these expeditions have had when these ladies return back to their home countries and people have to open their eyes and say, wow.
3: Yeah, and you know, it happened immediately in this case, when we were flying back from the North Pole, um, on board the helicopter that came to collect us from the North Pole was a journalist um, that had been sent out to cover our story. And as we were flying over the ice from the North Pole, he sat next to me and he said, you know, Felicity, you've changed my opinion with this expedition. And I said, what do you mean? And he'd been sent out to cover the expedition story because he was an Arabist, he spoke fluent Arabic, he'd lived in the Gulf states a long time and he said you know when I was given this story to come and cover he said I thought no way there is no way women from Arabia would be able to do this and he said to be honest I came out here to laugh at you and he said you have made me rethink my perspective and I just thought that is really wonderful of you to say that because It means that we know it's working. (laughs) And what they say about, you know, if you can just change one mind at a time, then slowly ripples turn into waves. And so that's what we hope.
2: Hmm, I love that. And I applaud you for what you're doing. I find it so perplexing that in today's world, I mean, even in the West, there are still injustices when it comes to gender. But when you go other places, the, the separation is still vast. There are so many women that are still held back and oppressed and not allowed to reach out for their full potential. And it, it, that's just, frankly, it's disgusting that that could still be going on. So I applaud you for highlighting this issue, you know, for showing the world that uh, it's wrong to think of one gender as uh, incapable in some way. It's just ridiculous.
3: Well, thank you for that. And, you know, as you say, it it does sort of start at home. And, you know, I'm still moved to anger quite frequently when I hear people within my own expedition community talking about their expedition teams. And you still hear it quite frequently. They, They refer to having women on their team almost as if, You know they're taking a hit in some way or they say something along the lines of oh but she's really good at the psychological stuff (laughs) and that really (laughs) annoys me because I think well actually she might actually be stronger than some of the other male members of your team you have no idea and you know also conversely I've worked with some women who have not been very good at the psychological stuff that have frankly been complete battle axes to work with and haven't had the first clue so I think uh, the sooner we stop putting people in boxes due to their gender, their skin color, their religion, where they come from, the better. You know, what we're all aiming for here, I think, is a world in which you judge people on their own merits and try not to make presumptions based on any other factors. And it's a hard thing to do, but that's what we've got to keep aiming for if we uh, want to get this right.
2: Absolutely. Very good. Very well said, too. Hey, I think this would be fun. I would like to mention uh, one of your expeditions, and then for you to give us just a brief reason why you decided to do this one, and maybe one of the key takeaways that came from it that you learned, and uh, we can just go through the list, because I think it's worth highlighting all of these things, and I'm going to miss some of them, so you're going to have to fill in the gaps for me here, Okay. but let's start with the Race Across Arctic Canada, the Polar Challenge in 2005.
3: Yeah, well, that was my first experience of the Arctic. So I'd come straight from the British Antarctic Survey, and the method of travel there was very heavyweight. You know, you take two radios, two tents, enough food for two men for 30 days, even if you're just going out, you know, for a couple of days. It was very heavyweight, it was very safety conscious. And uh, so I decided to do the race because it taught me a whole new way of travel. It taught me about going lightweight and fast, about you know the security of the race organisation around you. So it was a mix of being supported and being independent. So it it taught me a whole new style of travel, and uh, it also taught me that you never travel in a team of three. It's a terrible number to travel with because however the discussion goes, it will always feel like two against one, and that never turns out well. So I have never travelled in a team of three since then. (laughs)
2: really so you prefer two or four or five or six it's just three is a bad number? number
3: any other number I think works out better even if you're traveling as a two you know then it's one-on-one and it's kind of fair and fine but the the three thing it's very rare that you get each three you know each one in that three having a different viewpoint usually two people are more or less saying the same and one person is saying something different and that's a very isolating position to be in and it kind of emphasizes any uh, sort of resting paranoia there might be and it it just is a difficult number to make work so I've avoided teams of 3
2: Mm, Well, that's that's a good word and a good point. Um, Next one I have is 2006. And this is crossing the Greenland ice sheet.
3: Yeah, so this was my first independent expedition. So it wasn't part of an organized race or anything like that. It was just us going out onto the Greenland ice and it was the first time that I had been taken on the responsibility of leader in a, in a full sense. Um, so this expedition was my responsibility. I was leading it and I felt the weight of that hugely. So I learned a lot through, through that. But, you know, when I look back on that trip now, it takes my breath away just how stunningly naive we were. I mean, we got everything wrong. We've got rations wrong. We got our route even. I mean, we just found a map of Greenland and drew a line across the ice cap with a ruler and that was our route you know it was it was that stunningly naive and so I think we were very lucky to get away with it but also I'm extremely proud of that expedition because the performance we put in is probably still to date my best expedition performance we crossed the Greenland ice sheet in one direction in just 16 days And then we came Mm. back in 14 days. So we did a double crossing and did the entire thing in 31 days total. So it was a pretty impressive uh, performance to put in, but we really paid for it. We did it the hard way, (laughs) but we learned a lot.
2: (laughs) Goodness. So how many people were on that expedition? I'm, I'm sure it wasn't three.
3: No, it wasn't. There were four of us. And uh, it was it was a great team. We were all women again. And, and we just worked really well together as a team. We really sort of thought it out beforehand. Well, we thought we'd thought it out beforehand and made it work. But yeah, we got our boots wrong. So every day our feet were really frozen and we got our rations wrong. So we were starving hungry. And yeah, uh, it, we were lucky to get away with it, I think.
1: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected, and also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Rodeo season is gonna be kicking off soon, and you know, I I like the rodeo. I like going to the rodeo, I like going to cattle auctions and all sorts of those activities, and I wanna look the park while I'm there. I love Tecovis as my go-to boots company, and if you've ever been in one of their stores, it's an amazing experience. Their motto is don't go gently. They are my favorite cowboy boot, and they bring a fresh perspective to heritage boot making, and they carry forward all those time-honored traditions, and quality you will find in a great pair of cowboy boots, but they're innovative on comfort, style, and service. They have Western boots for men and women and are handmade from the most premium leather and follow over 200 time-honored individual steps in their boot making process. Pretty cool. They're Austin-designed, Texas-tested, and handmade. And if you want to go to one of their stores, it is an amazing experience. They take customer service to a whole new level. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. And as a special opportunity just for you listeners, Tecovis is gonna throw in their best-selling trucker hats or a ball cap for free into any purchase over $100 at tecovis.com. Just use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. Again, that's tecovis, dot com, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to add a free hat to your order over $100. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
2: I have to ask about the landscape of Greenland. I have seen Greenland from the air once, and it just enchanted me. I thought, wow, what is it like to be down there? Uh, What is Greenland like?
3: Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because I remember skiing across Greenland, looking up at the um, intercontinental jets flying over, thinking of all the people sat up there sipping their gin and tonics, (laughs) getting (laughs) a real pang of, oh my goodness, I would do anything to swap places with you right now. But yeah, the landscape of Greenland, I mean, it's just a thin fringe of rock and the rest of it is ice cap. So when we got to the edge of the ice cap, it was just a chaos of, Blocks of ice, and uh, you know, just a really daunting thing to see as your first few steps onto onto the centre of Greenland. You know, the first few days were perhaps the one of the biggest nightmares of the whole trip. And then the change that we saw. So uh, we set out. I think it was at the beginning of May, and by the time we came back to where we'd started, it was unrecognisable because the amount of melt. Uh, the whole place had melted into these ridges and in between the ridges were wide rivers of meltwater and terrifying moulins that we would come across, you know, these big holes that form in the ice and the water just roars into them. And you you can just, by the sound of them, puts the hair on the back of your neck on edge. And, you know, if you fall in one of those things, there is no one's ever going to see you again. Just really terrifying. Yeah, terrifying stuff. So a wonderful landscape, but a really daunting one.
2: Okay, so I don't have dates for everything that you've done. The next one I have is 2012 when you crossed Antarctica, but I'll bet there's something going on between these two.
3: Yeah, so the International Women's Expedition to the South Pole is in 2009. And in between those, I ran the Marathon de Sub, So that was a whole different um, environment to get to grips with. And I think that did me a lot of good, because I was able to experience again, that sense of nervousness when you're not familiar with an environment, you know, you start obsessing over your kit, and the smallest detail can suddenly seem like it has the greatest impact importance and as someone who regularly takes people into my own environment I regularly take people that have no previous experience into polar environments I think it did me a lot of good to experience or remember what it's like to be going somewhere where you have no idea what to expect so running from the marathon to sub was the reason I went there was because it was a different environment and I think the impact it had on me was remembering how terrifying it can be to go into an environment where you don't know what to expect. Uh, The International Women's Expedition I mean, this was the biggest trip that I'd ever put together. It was eight people. We were going to Antarctica, which is a really expensive place to go to. We needed to find corporate sponsorship in order to to pay for it. So that took nearly two years of preparation to to get all that together. I had to find the team. Uh, so finding women to go with me from places like Jamaica and Ghana and West Africa, you know, not the easiest thing to do. So I ended up traveling to a lot of different places to to find these amazing women that came with me and the experience that we had together one of the things that really stuck out for me was just how formative those times you have in the tent can be you know when you go on an expedition with someone uh, you know them in a way that I'm not sure anyone else in their life knows them. Uh, Because when you take someone into that environment, it doesn't matter where you come from. You know, everything that we like to hide behind is stripped away. You know, you, you don't know what car they drive or what their house looks like or what their job title is. You don't know anything. You're wearing the same clothes as them. You're eating the same food as them. You're doing the same things every day as them. And so what you get to see is the raw person that's left behind. You get to see who they truly are and you see them when they're under pressure and when they're feeling vulnerable. So I think you get to know people very well, very quickly. And what has always kept me going is the fact that more often than not, what you see is amazing. You know, people surprise you for positive reasons far more often than they let you down. And, you know, just from tiny acts of kindness, which actually take on monumental proportions. You know, when you've only got three bite-sized bits of chocolate that day, you know, to notice that one of your teammates is having a tough day and to give them your chocolate you know, just things mm. like that to give them a quiet hug uh you know when they need it or to ask the right questions and right up to you know really grandiose sort of decisions to step down when somebody needs to step down even though you desperately want to be a part of it or you know putting the group before your individual ambitions um you know that's not an easy thing to do when this ambition has taken up two years of sacrifice you know so people do astound you for uh, and just remind you how amazing human beings can be and are and i think you know in the rest of our lives i think we could do with just remembering how brilliant people are more often we hear a lot of negative stuff on the news and through the media about the rubbish people uh, about the people who are not so nice i think we need to hear more about just how brilliant people are
2: well it's amazing to think about the the kinds of interpersonal interactions that would take place when you take eight people, you know, on an expedition like this and and under very difficult situations, conditions. I mean, we have to recall, we're talking about what you've done because you've done it successfully, and we say, oh, yeah, you did this, great. But we have to remember that for, oh, boy, scores and scores and scores and scores of years when it became possible for humans to even get to Antarctica, people were trying to reach the South Pole and failing, Trying to cross the continent and failing, and that there's a long history of uh, attempts that did not go well. And yet, here you are, and you've done it, and you've done it with people that have never even been to the Arctic before.
3: Uh, I think it's uh, really easy to forget how lethal these places can be. Uh, you know, tragically, every now and again, there is a reminder um, a few years ago, there was a a fatal um, air accident in antarctica because the planes are flying on visual rules you know there's no air traffic control or radar posts or anything like that so they're doing everything through sight and you know cloud cover over white snow it's it's very difficult and even a uh, sort of ski expeditions there was a fatality just a few years ago and that one in particular it was an explorer who was very highly regarded uh, very experienced and it, it shook everybody i think you know nobody's immune and it's made us all perhaps think a little more about what we're doing, and you know every time you go out to do an expedition, it's always a case of balancing up those risks, finding the level of risk that is acceptable to you. And then you know you go back and, and you reevaluate that you know to see whether you're still getting that balance right. I remember having a conversation with my mother about it once uh, because somebody had asked me after a talk, you know, how, how does your mother feel about this? This must be, you know, terrible for her every time you go off. And so I asked her about it and she said, you know, but I see how well you prepare and how carefully you prepare and i see that you know you're not going out there to take foolish risks and i think there is a perhaps a perception out there that uh, to do these kind of polar journeys you need to be an adrenaline junkie or a, but in fact it's the exact opposite in order to to make those risks acceptable, you need to sit down and you know make plan after plan. You need to love a spreadsheet that 's for sure <laughs> to make sure that the risks you 're taking uh, you 're comfortable with
2: well i'm sure that that planning is uh, one of the reasons why you 've been successful i don 't think that you can do this without it so
3: no, and I think that goes for a lot of sports that are termed sort of extreme or adventurous. you know I think the reality is is that. You know, there is a lot of sitting down and working stuff out. Uh, I mean, for sure, there's always characters in a pack that seem to fly by the seat of their pants and get away with it. But, you know, not everybody's happy with that balance of risk. I think most people, particularly when you've got people relying on you to come back, um, <laughs> you, know, you have to make sure that that what you're doing is responsible.
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely give us your perspective. Having done such big things, I'd love to hear your perspective on the idea of just reaching for something bigger than yourself, and then finding out that you're big enough to do it, perhaps. But I mean, at some point with each of these expeditions, you have to question, you know, should I be trying this or not? I guess that what I'm looking for is just your perspective on why it's worthwhile to reach beyond to something bigger than ourselves.
3: Gosh, that's a big question to end with. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so often I get asked the question why, and I think the difficulty with asking someone like me that question is because you know it's so self-evident to me. You know, I want to go and do these things. I want to challenge myself. I want to feel as if I'm having. An effect on something bigger than myself you know i think if if you don't feel that yourself if you don't get that already you know i find it hard to pinpoint the exact you know to dissect that feeling and to pinpoint exactly why i feel that way you know people ask what did my parents do or you know was i a tomboy when i was a kid as if that's going to explain it I think you know if i had to sum it up in one word the reason why i do these things is first and foremost curiosity Uh, curiosity about the places themselves you know perhaps my biggest source of motivation for going to antarctica is antarctica you know i want to see it i want to know what it's like and secondly i also want to know what i would be like in those circumstances um you know, when I first went to Antarctica at 23 with the British Antarctic Survey and was asking myself that question on the ship, looking at this tiny station, will I be good enough? Am I good enough? Am I going to let people down? You know, I've been asking that question on every expedition since, um, you know, the first time I was a leader with the team in Greenland, you know, am I good enough? Is their confidence in me justified? And every time I go out, you know, there's a version of that question. So I'm not sure if it's something innate in human nature to always wonder what's beyond that horizon. But I think once you've done it once, you've pushed yourself and you have found something surprising and you've come back and it's felt great. You know, to finish up on my running analogy, you know, once you've gone out, done that run in the rain, come back and felt euphoric, you know, the next time you're facing the rain, um, you're almost looking forward to it.
2: Mm, I love that. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. I, it's the reason why we have the Adventure Sports Podcast. It's because we want to encourage people to try big things. And they don't have to be polar expeditions. You know, what's big for each individual? Let them decide, define that. But to go and have experiences that enlarge your lives and build those memories. And one other thought I'd like to share with you is the other day I realized everybody makes a difference in this world. Some people make a difference for bad some people make a small difference, some people make a huge difference, but you can't live in this space-time continuum without making an impact. And so the question I have for our listeners is, what kind of an impact are you making today, and what kind of things would you like to do to experience life in a whole new way? Thank you very much, Felicity, for coming on today and taking the time to share these amazing experiences with us. I think it's just wonderful what you're doing, and I applaud you. Good for you.
3: Thanks very much. Oh,
2: well, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, you know, I always say get out there and have some fun. And after a, an interview like this one, that sounds almost trite, doesn't it? <laughs> but maybe your fun <laughs> is big. Maybe your fun is little. Whatever it is, make sure you do get out there. Make that difference in the world today
1: and have some fun.